be resuming again this morning, uh, picking up right where we left off, but we won't read the whole section. We're going to be starting in chapter 3, verse 13. We're going to be going into chapter 4, but for this time, if you would just stand out of respect for the words of the Lord, and we're just going to read the first, we're going to read 13 through 16 in chapter 3, and then uh, we'll, we'll pray together. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are the great I am, that you are good to us in every way, that you you shepherd us perfectly, you lead us just flawlessly because that is who you are. And thank you for the opportunity to know you and to praise you and to worship you, to engage with your word. So in this time, may this continue to be worship as we submit to your teaching, as we desire with our hearts to be conformed to Christ, to make him known. We trust you with this time. It is a privilege to be the church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Now we're going to go through this larger checking point. We're going to go bit by bit. And so some of it I'll reread. Some of it we'll be reading for the first time, obviously. But there in in those first couple verses that we read, 13 to 16, in the song we just sang, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The three occurrences of I am in verse 14 there, you see it, I am who I am. Say, I am has sent me to you three different times. And all three occurrences are are forms of the Hebrew verb that means to be. Just simply to be. That's huge. That is unbelievably mind-blowingly huge to consider that God says, this is who I am. This is who is sending you. Just think about it. There are three implications. There are three lessons within the idea of to be, not was, not will be, but am. I am to be. The first implication is that God is eternally self-existent and therefore not dependent on anyone or anything. I mean, all that he needs, he is. Eternally self-existent and self-sufficient. Like we sang in one of the songs, he is not relying on us for anything. That's, that's awesome. To behold, to conceive, to consider. 
Because what that also means, if he is the only one eternally self-existent, then he must be the creator and sustainer of all things because nothing else is self-existent and eternally so. If you know Carl Sagan, Carl Sagan famously once quipped, if you really want to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. Wow, right? Wow, think of it like that. If you really, I mean, how many of us are proud that we're from scratch bakers or scratch cooks? You're not. You're beginning with something created by someone else. Well, no, I grew everything myself. Okay, you made the dirt, you made the chemical compounds that make this process happen. Like, so because God is I am, he is eternally self-existent and self-sufficient, which means he must be the originator of all things. And because he is able to say, I am, not only is he these two things, but that also means that who he will be, he is and he always has been. He is immutable. That big fancy theological word that you might hear that means unchanging. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews talks about Jesus in this way. And so all of this is unpacked and revealed simply in, I am which is great. Because what we're going to see as we consider this theme of Exodus in this section of Scripture that Yahweh, I am, is infinitely greater than you and I are. Like, it's awesome to consider that God just says, I am. And then you know I love doing this. You know this is one of my favorite things to do. Trinitarian theology sprinkled throughout all of Scripture. So God the Father, I am. What does Jesus say in John 8, 58? Before Abraham was, I am. I mean, you talk about like a, every time I try and really wrap my head around the time of that sentence, like it just, I get a headache. And the Pharisees immediately understood what Jesus was saying. Because when Jesus says in John 8, 58, when Jesus says, I am, the Pharisees immediately pick up rocks to stone him. Stoning was the punishment for blasphemy, for claiming equality with God. And so Jesus is demonstrating just awesome Trinitarian theology that ties into the Old Testament when Jesus says in John, I am. So it's really, really cool to understand that this is who God is, always has been, and always will be. It's such a tableau for this entire section of Scripture as he's talking to Moses and as Moses is demonstrating some habits that I think we still demonstrate today that we're going to get into a little bit. But continuing to, to consider this idea, this name, I am, I mean, we could, honest to goodness, we could spend three months on this name alone. And we will at some point. Get ready. But right now, I, I just want to hit, sometimes I think there's also impact in, in just realizing and allowing Scripture to stand for itself. So God says to Moses, I am who I am. Say to the people, I am has sent you. You see the same name used in Psalm 23.1. The Lord Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. Yahweh is what it transitions to in verse 15 and 16 there as he goes from I am to Yahweh. Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Amos 4, 13, for behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts is his name. Like, consider the imagery that God uses there. It's, it's unbelievable. Like, 
I have climbed some decent-sized mountains. I've had the privilege to climb some decent-sized mountains where you're looking down, and it's, it's incredible how far you can see. And I'm winded and exhausted and leaning against a rock for a good part of being up there at first. And then Scripture says, oh, I, God steps on those mountains. He treads on those mountains. Like, that's unbelievable to consider the magnitude of I am Yahweh speaking to Moses, engaging with him, calling him in this moment. And then he goes on from there. In this part, we're going to read through. Uh, don't, don't worry about trying to read along. This is, uh, we'll call this the movie trailer section of Exodus. What we're going to see in this next bit, these next few verses are previews of what's going to get unpacked a lot later with a lot more depth as we continue through this, this narrative, this historical recording of what happened. So if you then go back into your Bibles, and it'll open up to uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 17. We're going to read, I'll pause, I'll identify what we see, and then we'll keep moving on as we read through this. 3, 17 to 20. I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. That gives us a, a real quick preview about what's coming over many chapters. The conversation with Pharaoh, the back and forth. The, oh yeah, you can go, just kidding. Oh yeah, you can go, just kidding. And then the final exodus from Egypt. And what that demonstrates, what we need to start anticipating is that God knows. What's he say to Moses? He says, hey, you're going to go and you're going to say, let my people go. And he won't do it until I, I show him, until I demonstrate my power and might. God knows before he asks you to do something, he knows how it's going to unfold. And he is sovereign in all of that. So no matter what the circumstances may seem like that we start to get intimidated by or paranoid about or anxious over, like, wow, things are not going well for us. No, God knows, and he's sovereign. And then you continue, you go back into verse 21, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and for gold jewelry and clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. This is a reconfirmed promise back from Genesis 15, when God established the promise. When he said, we looked at it back in the intro to Exodus, where God promised, hey, the people, they're going to be sojourners for 400 years, and then when they leave, they will leave blessed and enriched. God is reconfirming that promise, and he's adding even more detail. Where is that blessing going to come from? Where are those riches going to come from? If we're slaves, that doesn't sound like a great stock market option. No, you're going to plunder the Egyptians. They're going to give these things to you. So God is hes reconfirming his promise, and he's giving even more detail at this time, which is really, really cool. We're going to continue to see this. And then you have four Chapter, or chapter 4, verses 2 to 9, and I realize there's a 1 before 2, but we're going to get to that in just a second. So chapter 4, verse 2, the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. 
that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. I am really excited to look at the ten plagues because they show some awesome details of God's sovereignty. And not just sovereignty over the physical. I mean, think about it. The staff, a piece of wood, natural material, turned into living things. Then sovereignty over the physical body. Moses' hand, leprous, healthy. Leprous, healthy. Then sovereignty over the water. So, like, so we see really cool things about that. But then this is something that I learned recently, studying Exodus and preparing for it. The deliberateness of the plagues and how the plagues tore down the false idolatry within the Egyptian religious system. Like, I didn't, I had never put two and two together. And then you start looking at the plagues and how so many of the plagues were specific attacks and assaults and tearing down of Egyptian gods. It's really, really cool. And we're also going to talk about the story of Baal and Elijah, which has one of the funniest lines in all of the Bible. So it'll be great as we continue through Exodus and we see God's sovereignty in all circumstances and omniscience of what those circumstances will bring. As we see God's sovereignty over all aspects of life. As we see God demonstrating that he alone is God. He alone is the true God. As we see all of these things, his promises, his faithfulness that is greater than our faithlessness. This section of, of Exodus really lays out a great preview of what's to come. And so I'm very excited for that as well. But the meat of what I want to look at today, what I feel like God burdened my heart with and prepping and praying is really the follow-up, naturally so. But the lesson follow-up, the truth follow-up to what we looked at last week with Moses in the call. Moses turning and saying, God, here I am. God calling him to something. And so Moses, I'm not, this is not a tear down Moses. This is not a time to tear down Moses. We laid out last week how Moses sets a wonderful holy standard of responding to God. Here I am. And we looked at scripture when God's people said, mm, okay, I hear God calling. I'm going to go the other way. So be encouraged by Moses, but then also recognize in Moses that accepting the call, responding to the call does not negate the, negate the fact that we are still fallible, broken people who are going to need a patient Lord to bring us along. And so what do you see in Exodus? And now we're going to read 4 verse 1. If you go back to 3.11, if you even recall 3.11, when God says, hey, come, I'm going to send you to bring the people out of Egypt. And Moses' immediate response is, who am I to go? And you're like, okay, is, is that just a humility thing? Is that a reluctance thing? What's going on here? I think we see more of Moses' character response to it as we continue through Exodus. So Exodus 4, after God has just done this incredible presentation of I am who I am, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you, Yahweh. God has laid out who he is, and Moses' response in 4.1 is, then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Then you jump ahead 
to 4, chapter 10, or 4, chapter 10, chapter 4, verse 10. There we go. But Moses said to the Lord, so after God then says, hey, these are the signs you're going to do. Like, I don't know. I can't even hypothesize. I don't know what I would do if I put my hand inside my jacket pocket and I pulled it out and it was leprous and then I put my hand back in and it was clean. If like I picked up this little clicky thing and put it on the ground and it turned into a snake and then God's like, hey, pick the snake back up. I'm like, too late. I'm already 20 feet in the opposite direction. Like, I don't know how I would respond to the magnitude of seeing God demonstrate his power in such a real way. But we know how Moses responded. Verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then you jump down to verse 13. Moses again, so God responds to Moses's, you know, hey, I'm still not good at this. I still can't do this. And God says, no, no, no. And he lays it out. And then verse 13, Moses said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. We see a tragic propensity for a stubborn rejection of God's call. And I think we see it in God's people throughout scripture. And if we're being real honest with ourselves, I think we still struggle with this in our lives today. Just that stubborn insistence that, okay, God, I know your I am. I believe you're Yahweh. I sing about it. I've got it written on a note card taped to my mirror. Like, I believe these things, but you got this one wrong. I believe that you're calling your people to these things, but here's why I can't do this. Here's why I'm not up for the task. I, I mean, Moses, time and time again, God's like, hey, I'm calling you to do this. And Moses says, well, who am I to go? And God's like, well, no, I'm calling you to do this. He says, well, but the people won't listen to me. And God says, no, Moses, I'm calling you to do this. Yeah, but I'm not good with speech. And God says, no, I'm calling you to do this. And the pattern that Moses shows, we see again in Scripture throughout God's people's history. First, I'm going to discount myself. Then if that doesn't work, I'm going to try and blame others. And then I'm going to go back to discounting myself. And then Moses just flat out tries to say, well, can't you get somebody else to do it? This is, this is Scripture. Genesis 3, 12 to 13, Adam and Eve You talk about an abdication of responsibility. You talk about an immediate pass the buck, blame someone else. So Adam and Eve have sinned, and God says to Adam, you know, hey, explain this. And the man said, the woman who you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I mean, from the start, our immediate reaction to conviction of sin is, okay, who can I blame? Whose fault is it? Surely it's not my fault. That reaction I had on the road? No, 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 not my fault. That guy didn't use his turn signal. He deserved my wrath. My reaction in the store, my reaction to my family? No, 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 you don't understand. I would have never raised my voice. I would have never responded in this way. I would have never entered into sin if they first hadn't done this. The pattern began in Genesis. Moses, you're called. Well, but the people won't. It's their fault. God, I would totally go if the people would be more open, but they won't listen to me. Moses tries to blame others. What do you see in 1 Samuel 15, starting in verse 2? 
Saul is king. And in 1 Samuel 15, verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. So the Lord is calling Saul to go to war with a country, with a people. He says, I noted what they did. I noticed their sin against me. And so now he calls to Saul and the people. He says, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Total, 100%. God's very clear. He's not speaking in riddles. Surely the king obeys. Surely the people obey. When it is this crystal clear, surely you and I today would never disobey crystal clear commands from the Lord. What do we see in verse 9? Devote everything to destruction. Verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. I mean, immediately rejecting the call that God has placed on Saul as leader of the people. Immediately rejecting the call that God has placed on them. Then you continue, and what do you see? Down in verse 13, Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. What does he say? I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Did he? Not a trick question. What did we see in verse 2? Devote everything to destruction. Verse 9, did they? No. What's he say to Samuel? I have performed the command of the Lord. Samuel immediately calls on him, calls him on it. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, How does Saul start his defense? Saul said, They have brought them down from the Amalekites. They did it. It's their fault. Saul said, they have brought them down from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, the sheep and the ox, and the best of the things devoted to destruction. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Matthew 24, starting in verse 24, Jesus is telling a parable of the servants with talents. And we get to the very end, the servant who did nothing with what he had been entrusted by his master. And Jesus says these words, he said, He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Old Testament, God's people called to a standard. Don't meet the standard. Who can I blame? 
New Testament, Jesus telling the parable, servants called to a standard, don't meet the standard, who can I blame? There's just a pattern of, I'm going to use the word again, tragic. There's a pattern of tragic stubbornness in rejecting the call of God. How many excuses can I come up with? What are all the different reasons I can think of so that I'm not the one who has to do this? I'm not the one who has to have this conversation. I'm not the one who, well, I'll apologize if they apologize first. Well, I'll love if they love first. I mean, tell me we're not exactly like Moses today. Tell me we don't do these same things. Whose fault is it? Surely it's not mine. Have you seen me? I'm awesome. Surely it's somebody else's fault. Who can I blame? Or surely God's not actually calling me to do this. Have you seen how unawesome I am? Have you seen how ill-prepared I am for this? Have you seen how bad I am at these? Like maybe it's actually really cynical spiraling. Maybe it's not ego. Maybe it's not, I'm awesome. Who can I blame? Maybe it's, no, 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 God. There's no way you're actually asking me to do this because I'm such a wreck. There's no way you're actually asking me to do this because I'm so bad at this. Maybe it's a horrible rejection of what God has said because we don't take him seriously about his promises to be with us and lead us and teach us. We may say we do, but do our lives reflect that we actually believe it? Don't get stuck here. Yeah, we need to reflect. We need to reflect. Am I being Moses? Am I being that stubborn, persistent, no God, no God, no God, no God? How many lists, how many reasons can I come up with why I shouldn't do this? But don't get stuck there. Do the reflection and then recognize how patient God is with Moses. Hey, Moses, I called you from the burning bush. Go do that. Ah, who am I? Okay, I'll answer the question. Well, no, the people. Okay, I'll answer the question. Well, no, like God is so wonderfully patient with Moses. One of the reasons I love the book of Judges, which at first glance might seem like kind of a depressing book. I mean, read through Judges and just highlight in red or some other color you don't like so you recognize that it's a bad thing. But like highlight how many times in Judges it says, and the people immediately forgot what the Lord had done and went back to idols. But what if we approach it with the perspective of, wow, Judges is like this incredible testimony of God's mercy and patience. What if we look at the story of Moses and we allow it to cause us to reflect of, hey, am I stubbornly insisting on my own way? Am I stubbornly per focusing on the wrong things? Am I stubbornly insisting on a negative perspective? What if we reflect, but then we say, wow, Lord, thank you so much for your patience with me. Thank you so much for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness. Because that's what we see the Lord demonstrate with Moses. And so before we dive into that, I want to make sure that we are taking the scriptural, and we're also looking at, okay, scripturally, practically in our lives. Because let's be honest. All of us at some point, I'll go first, me. I have 100% been Moses' stubbornness. No, 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 no. Someone else, some other time, some other place, some other person. No, 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 not me. I I'm going to bet that we've all done that. So let's look at, let's look at how God uses his word to dismantle our excuses, our reasons. 
So here are, when you think of the call to be ambassadors for Christ, when you think of the call to be ministers of reconciliation, of the new covenant, when you think of the call to be pursuing holiness, make every effort to increase in these things. When you think of this call, this holy call on our lives, here are the excuses I've used at times. Here are the excuses I have other people tell me. The first excuse, I'm just too busy right now. I'm in a season of busyness. Don't raise your hands. I see smiles. I'm just in a season of busyness, but next season, when things aren't busy, then I'll step up and I'll answer the call. Then I'll do what I'm supposed to. Well, what's scripture say? Psalm 119, 59 to 60. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Ecclesiastes 5.4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. When we entered into submission to the Lord Jesus, Kyrios, we said, my life is yours. Pay up. Pay up. Scripture's clear. The time is now. Consider Luke. This is Luke chapter 9. Starting in verse 57, Jesus is speaking. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I've asked this question this way before. What life are you waiting for to give everything to God? You're waiting to die to do it? Like, what are you waiting for? Why not now? Why do we delay? Why do we pretend like next year won't be as busy? Next year won't have as many hiccups. There'll just be new hiccups. There'll just be new delays. Ephesians 5, 15 to 16. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Would anyone say we live in evil days? Yeah, I hear a lot of the church saying we live in evil days. Do you think that's new to us? Like we're, we're somehow this unique, special moment in history and things have been, you know, rosy up until now? Ephesians, hey, the days are evil. You guys familiar with the story of Noah? Days were evil. So how are we living in the time? Are we making the best use of the time? Or are we saying, well, I'm just, not right now, things are too crazy, but next season of life, Lord, that's when I'll pay up what I owe you. That's when I'll answer your call. Scripture deals with it. I'm not good at this stuff. I'm not good with words. If we had a scholarship for every person who said, oh, I just can't do this because I'm not good with words, we could send every single Christian in Richland County to speech class. I'm not good with words. I stumble over my words. I'm not articulate. I, I can't memorize this stuff. I don't have a good memory. I was never a good student. School was hard for me. Like, this just isn't my forte. That's why I don't live out this calling as an ambassador, because I'm just, I'm not good at this stuff. Okay, well, what's scripture say? 
Exodus 4, 11 to 12, which we'll get to in a second, is why it's the transition part. John 14, 26, Jesus is speaking. He says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Matthew 10, 20, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. It's the same truth, the same lesson, the same statement almost exactly in Luke 12, 11 to 12 and Luke 21, 15. So you're not a good student. You don't have a good memory. You're not great with words. The Holy Spirit's sufficiencies as teacher are infinitely greater than near insufficiencies as student. The Holy Spirit's power to call to mind the things you know, infinitely greater than your failing memory. The Holy Spirit's power to give you the words in the moment in the conversation, infinitely greater than your stammering tongue. So what do we believe is greater? My self-perceived lacking or the power of God? Ask yourself, well, what do you listen to? Scripture or the excuses? Or just go general. Or just sum this one up. I just don't know what to do. Somebody says something hard and I don't know what to do. I freeze. I just, I don't have the wisdom for that situation. My coworker talks about their failing marriage and I kind of panic and say, hey, how about that weather? My neighbor asks me, you know, hey, how do you parent your kids? And I'm like, uh, can I borrow a tool? My family member, my brother, my sister, my aunt, my uncle, they come to me and they say, hey, how do you deal with, you know, a bad health diagnosis? And I don't know what to do. I just, I wish I had the word. I just, I don't know what to do in a situation. So that's why I can't live this out. That's why I can't pursue this calling because I just, I don't know. I'm, I got nothing. What scripture say? Psalm 32, 8, God is speaking. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. James 1, 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Do you believe scripture to be true? Okay. So do you believe that if you say, Lord, I am hearing my coworker say something hard. I am hearing my family member say something hard. I am hearing this person in my life who is broken and in need of a savior say something hard. And Lord, I got nothing. Do you know how many 10 second prayers I've said while someone else is talking? Half of my brain is listening and the other half of my brain is going, okay, Lord, please show up because this is way beyond my capacity. So if you believe scripture, do you believe God will answer and honor that prayer? If your heart is, Lord, I want to be that ambassador. I want to point them to Christ. I want to glorify you in this conversation. I can't remember the verses. Would you call to mind the things I know? Would you teach me what to say that will point them to Jesus? Or do we stick with the excuses we know we can hide behind and continue to stubbornly, persistently reject the calling on our lives? Because what else do we see as we continue through Exodus? Let's go back to chapter 4, verse 10, one of Moses' excuses. And this time we're going to read it straight through. So you get Moses' excuse and God's response. Chapter 4, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? 
Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him, and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. You think God doesn't know your self-perceived shortcoming? Do you believe God's omniscient? hey, I'm calling you to be this light in this neighborhood. God, I'm not good with words. And God's like, oh, shoot, I didn't think of that. Wow, that's a really good point. Okay, I guess I have to change up my plan. You think God doesn't know the excuse you're going to give before it's on your tongue? And it might be shortcomings. It might be difficulties. What does he say? He says, who made man mute? Who made man deaf? Who made man blind? Those are obstacles. Those are things that make certain aspects of life harder for people. You think God doesn't know that? So maybe you really do have a failing memory. You think God doesn't know that? Maybe you really do have a speech impediment and words are hard. We're not making light of that. You think God doesn't know that? What I'm saying is whatever we want to say is the reason why we can't live out the calling. We have to recognize that God is sovereign over that. He is aware of that. And that has not changed his calling. He continues to demonstrate patience with Moses. I mean, do you notice there at the very end, do you catch the detail that he still gives him a helper? Like Moses is like, excuse, excuse, excuse. And God's like, okay, fine, you have Aaron. Like, Aaron will go with you. Aaron will do this for you. But it still doesn't excuse Moses from the call that God has placed on his life. So consider what Scripture says. Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Isaiah 29, 16. You turn things upside down. This is a rebuke. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? I mean, are we a pot that's telling the potter you don't know what you're doing? Isaiah 45, 9, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making, or your work has no handles? But, uh, again, I love the imagery of Scripture. God, you're calling me to be a pot with, I, I don't have handles. God's like, yeah, I know, I made you. The pot doesn't have that right. That's folly. Romans 9.20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Guys, God's called us to be holy. He's called us to make every effort to increase in holiness. He's called us to be ambassadors. He's called us to be ministers. He's called us to be his church, his bride. He's not called us all to the same roles. We've looked at this before. When we went through the 2 Corinthians series, we looked at role versus identity. We're not all called to the same roles. 
There are roles that, yeah, maybe we're never called to. Scripture says not all of you should teach. Why can't we accept that? Scripture says, hey, the body has many members. Does the hand say to the foot, I don't need you? No. So we recognize that we're called to different roles. But the calling of holiness, the calling to be the church, to be the light, to be the salt, that's for all of us. That's for all believers. So are we going to say to God, hey, I have this idea of this self-weakness that's holding me back from living this calling out. In case you weren't aware, Lord, here are my reasons why I can't pursue this. Or are we going to say, here I am, use me? Because he's sovereign, because he knows, because he formed us deliberately, he assembled his church, he assembled his bride. So how are we going to respond? Are we going to respond like Moses at the start of the bush, here I am? Or are we going to respond like Moses in the subsequent conversation? Well, here are all the reasons why I can't do this. And God eventually says, enough, do it. I'll give you Aaron, I'll give you the speaker helper, fine. Do it. Do what I have called you to do. I mean, notice that at the end, God does not excuse Moses from his call. He says, okay, I will give you Aaron, and you go and say what I tell you to say. Consider Scripture, Ephesians 2.10. For we, if you doubt this, if you are still sitting there, and the enemy is, is whispering so strongly to you, if you've spent so many years listening, if you spent most of your life listening to all of the little doubts and voices and reasons of why you can't do this, why you're not good enough, why you're too flawed, you're too broken, this is for everyone else but not you. If you've spent so many years that it's built up this incredible callous, listen to Ephesians, please. Hear what God says about you. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The works are prepared to walk in them. Jeremiah 1 sums it up beautifully. This is Jeremiah 1, starting in verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Before you were born, think of your birthday. You got it? You got your birthday? Before that day, God formed you. He knew you. He consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Don't say to God, I'm only this. Don't say to God, well, I have this shortcoming. You're speaking to the one who formed you and knew you and chose you. So we just say, here I am. Send me, use me. So this week, as we consider this, 
As we consider this lesson from Moses, this progressing story of Moses, of God delivering his people, let's all read 2 Corinthians 4. If you're curious, there's a sermon on 2 Corinthians. Actually, I think there's several sermons on 2 Corinthians 4 from the last series. But let's read 2 Corinthians 4. Let's pray as led by 2 Corinthians 4. Let's continue to remember, to memorize, to internalize, to meditate on, to contemplate, to treasure, to store in our hearts. Exodus 4, 11 to 12 that we just looked at. Who made you? Who made men mute? Who made men deaf? Who made men blind? I will go with you. I will teach you what to say. And then reflect again, if you want to do it around the, the dinner table as a family, if you want to call me up, if you want to call my wife up, if you want a conversation, if you're not there yet, if you need to do it personally, introspectively, but reflect, what is the primary excuse you make from shirking back from holier living? What's the primary excuse that you allow to determine your response to holier living? Is it blaming other people? Is it blaming your circumstances, blaming your settings? What is it? We all have one. I know my primary excuses. Busyness. Busyness is a big one. There's always one more phone call you could make. There's always one more thing that could be done. There's always somewhere else that I could be spending my time. So what's your primary excuse that holds you back from holier living? Then what does scripture say about it? How does it correct it? And then let's ask ourselves, okay, am I going to submit to scripture or am I going to continue to perpetuate a stubborn insistence on this excuse? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your patience with us. Forgive our thick-headedness. Forgive our bullheadedness. You formed us. You know us. You have made us. You have called us. So where you have placed us, where you have put us, may we live out your calling. May we proclaim the gospel. May we proclaim the good news to the hurting and the brokenhearted. May we love. May we serve. May we humble ourselves. May we consider others better than ourselves as we reflect the heart of Christ. May we lay down our lives and worship for you. May we give you our everything. May we not delay. May we not put it off for tomorrow. God, we repeat the prayer from last week. When you call us, may we say, here I am, use me. And then, Lord, for our difficulties, for our failing memories, for our struggle with studying, for our struggle with words, for whatever makes it hard for us to do these things, God, we ask for wisdom, we ask for recollection, we ask for clarity, we ask for discernment, you know what we will need in our conversations. You know what we will need in our interactions. You know what we will need in this week to live out your holy calling. So, Lord, provide it. Please, we rely on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey everyone, Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content. Thanks for joining us.